I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Good day, good people. This is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 145 of the pandemic. Today on the show, Emily Liebert, whose book Perfectly Famous came out in June during all of this madness. We had a very lovely conversation. If you've listened to the program, you know a lot of times I have like I'm always referencing my hometown and the small Appalachian place that I came up with. Emily has a very different life than mine, and it was great sort of bouncing things off of each other and, and hearing stories that I sort of repeatedly, I think, did what you will do, which is like, what? Like, how does that happen? Like, where did that come from? So it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. This also ends the first week of us in the Solid Listen Podcast Network, which we're very excited about. It's a lot of fun. We have a lot of great guests coming. I know next week is going to be another big week. It's so exciting for us to be part of this. And if you go to writersjam.com, there's a couple things you can see. We have a Patreon link for the whole network, so if you like what you're hearing, you can go support us there. Our newsletter just came out. It comes out the first of every month with book recommendations and the book releases for that month. And we have, uh, uh, we're looking at literary 
nonprofits, and we're trying to spotlight those that we think are worthy of your time and money. So you can sign up for the newsletter there and all of that stuff. And as always, our happy hour with Allison Wood, whose book, Being Lolita, is just out in the world. Very excited. You can go and sign up for that at the website. Uh, There's just a few spots left. It's free. It's going to be a good time. And don't worry if you haven't read the book. It's spoiler-free. This is really just a time to come, bring readers together, meet a cool author, have a fun conversation, and... Drink whatever it is that you bring to the table. So before we get to the interview today, there's been a lot of stuff swirling around out here. So we're getting ready to go back to school. I'm the editorial director at a university press at Carnegie Mellon University. And as you can imagine, it's really stressful. It's Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. And we've been doing okay in the pandemic. We've had some spikes, but... Everybody has sort of responded to that and gone back and done what they needed to do to lower, to lower that rate. But now we're about to have all these college students come back on campus, and nobody's really sure what that's going to look like. So there's just a tremendous amount of anxiety, not only about everybody's emotional, mental, and physical health, but for those of us who work, also wondering what the fate and future of our jobs will be if universities go online, if students don't come to school, if Allegheny County has to shut down again, like what that means. And there's just this tremendous weight in this black cloud that everybody out here listening feels, this sort of unknown about what happens next. And so that's sort of been where my head has been. And I picked up two books. As you know, I generally don't read the books of people who I'm going to interview until after I interview them because I don't want that to influence the interview. If I like the book, I'll change the way I interview them. And if I don't like the book, I'll change the way I interview them. And whether I like it or not is actually irrelevant to the interview. I like reading them and then having conversations with them after, away from all of you people, so that we can talk about craft and structure and like what they were trying to do. Because when I don't like a book, it doesn't mean the book is bad. It means I maybe wasn't a fan of that structure. or Maybe I didn't think something was pulled off. And so maybe I just don't understand what the writer was trying to do. And so when I don't like a book, that's sort of what I'm trying, when I talk to authors, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what did I miss? Um, what did I understand? Find out what they're like. Yeah, that thing didn't work like I thought it would. You know, the kinds of conversations that I think if I did a podcast about that, none of you would listen to because uh, it's really mechanical in its discussion. So I picked up Tomboyland, which just came out. And we'll have Melissa Palavino on the show in in just a couple weeks. And the book is amazing. Uh, The interview was so much fun. And I also picked up a book called Negroland by Margot Jefferson, who's not on the program and who I haven't scheduled on the program. But both of these were about identity and their and socially constructed identity, the identity that you have for yourself, the push that comes from external forces on that identity, both as a town, as a person, as a race, all of these things. And... I read them, I oftentimes have two or three books going at the same time, and I was reading both of those just by chance at the same time. Bombarded by this idea of identity, and I just, I sent Melissa a note when I got finished, because I was like, the book is fucking fantastic. 
and it made me uncomfortable at times because I am part of the culture that pushes on other people's identity. I'm a middle-aged, straight, white man from a small rural town. I am the thing that we are trying to fix in society. And one of the great things about her book and one of the great things about therapy that has helped me get to is the things I was uncomfortable about. I recognized as a flaw in me. It wasn't a flaw in her. It wasn't a flaw in her writing. It wasn't a flaw in her story. And it, it disturbed me that I had these initial reactions about some of the things she was writing that made me uncomfortable because I like to think I'm progressive. I like to think that I um, am heading on the right side of history and I'm doing the work to, to be better than I was yesterday, like good people try to do. It's not a direct line and we fall and we fail a lot. But it was so fascinating to read that and to read Negroland, which is about sort of the black bourgeoisie and this sort of upper-class, historically black college, fraternity, sorority community in the black American experience. Because that one didn't bother me. That one didn't, I didn't have reactions to that. I thought, yeah, these are, this is a story that we should be hearing, right? And this is a story that I have heard and I, it wasn't entirely new. But hearing her version of that story, I thought, yeah, no, this is really important for us now. And, and I had that same response with Melissa's book, but I also had that other thing in me. And as I've talked to some of my writer friends over the last week, because this is really stuck in my head, as... Like, we understand, most people understand systemic racism, systemic homophobia, you know, systemic patriarchy, all of those things. But we also think that we're immune to them. Many of us think we're immune to them. And her book is so good uh, that it both reminded me that I'm not immune from them, knowing that they, knowing that those structures exist does not actually mean I've done the work to, to navigate through those in a way that is not just tolerable, but it, that actually breaks those things down. And it's, that's really hard to confront in yourself, particularly when you don't think that that is a problem, and then you're sort of faced with it, and you're like, well, that's a problem. And it's one of the reasons that I love this show. It's one of the reasons that I love interviewing people from all over the world. It's why I don't do a lot of research on folks before we do these interviews, because I want to be surprised like you're surprised. And I know that means sometimes, you know, I'll look at people and I'll sort of know their background and, you know, they'll have big things that you may be expecting us to talk about that we never get to, because I figure, well, that's well-worn territory. I'm always interested in sort of the bobbing and weaving that we do through people's stories. And I like being confronted with things that make me think about what I think because that's how we get better. That's how we change. That's how we do all this stuff. Um, and so re-listening to my interview with Emily, who has a very different life than Melissa, than Margot, than me, 
But it also is such a fun story, and it's such a fun interview, and she's delightful, and we had a great time on the pre-call, and a great time on the call, and a great time chatting after, and we share a love of dogs, and that, to me, is enough to bind anybody together. So that's sort of what has been resonating as I've been thinking about what you're about to hear and thinking about this interview, this idea of identity and the ways in which, man, it's hard to be a human. It is hard to be a human. So the best thing we can do is not make it hard on those people around us and to look at the things about us that we think need to be fixed and try to fix them and don't push that off on other people. We are large. We contain multitudes. And it's why I loved Melissa's book. It's why I loved Margot's book. And it's why I love talking to Emily about her book, Perfectly Famous. So without further ado, here we go. So how long have you been teaching? Is it called bar? I, I never know this. Is it called bar or bar A? Yeah. No, it's called bar. Okay. Um, so in my head, I've always called it bar A. <laughs> I know because it's B-A-R-E. Yeah. Um, I've been teaching for five years. What got you into that? I was seriously, I was, we moved to Westport Um and I hadn't, I'd always been a runner, but I hadn't exercised in a couple of years. I was, the running was giving me like knee issues and all sorts of stuff. And um, probably because I was like running on the pavement all the time. Yeah. And um, so uh, I hadn't exercised in a couple of years and I'm, I've, I'm naturally thin. So I, I never had to exercise to keep weight off which is lovely, but it's also easy to let yourself go then and not <laughs> yeah. exercise. Yeah. So I was walking toward a storefront and I waved at someone and I saw the skin under my arm, <laughs> like flap in the glass. Yeah. And I was like, I got to get toned. Like, you know, I got to, yeah. even if it's not for losing weight and I just have to do it for health reasons, you know, I'm, I was in my late thirties. And, um, so I joined as a, um, student, like I joined as a, a client and the first year I took like 150 classes or something. Oh my God. And so you did it. Like, like you weren't messing around. So it was natural for me. I've been a dancer all my life, not in any professional capacity, just, you know, for, I've taken it all my life. And so, um, I was just kind of naturally good at it. And they were like, would you ever consider teaching? And I was like, I I have like, I mean, my kids were younger then. So I was like, I have like a five-year-old and a four-year-old. I write a book a year. Like, when am I going to teach? And they were like, you could take two classes a week, like at 8.40 in the morning. And I was like, it seemed like a really interesting, cool challenge. Because um, you don't just actually go in and make it up. Like you have to go to extensive training for it. And there's a whole like method to it, you know? Yeah. So I did it. And I, I never looked back. I, uh, <laughs> you know, for so many people, people are like, oh, you know, the hard part is like getting up in front of everyone and like doing the teaching part on the microphone. And I was like, 
anytime anyone will listen to me on a microphone for 55 minutes, best day of my life. I'm like, can I bring this home? Like, put your toys away. Like, play your... Uh, um, and and, and so now you- I'm just a substitute because I, I like got too busy in my real job. Um, so I just sub when people like are on vacation or if someone's not feeling well or something, but, um, I taught regularly for like three years, like three or four classes a week. It's also good because unlike writing, you get feedback right there. Totally. Like you're not sitting in a room by yourself. Like people are responding to you, so, but you just like jumped it. Like you're one of those people that just, cause there are pe- like, I do Olympic lifting. We were talking about this and like, there are people that like go do it. And then there are people that are like, Oh my God, this is life. And like, all of a sudden they're taking all the coaching classes and they're like, this is what I want to do now. And they're right. like, is that you in your life? Or did that just happen with this thing? I get the sense that that's you in your life. Yeah. That's kind of me in my life. <laughs> yeah. I don't do things I'm not good at. <laughs> and then when you, and, and if you're not good at it, I'm assuming that you're then going to decide that you're going to get good at it. That's probably true. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't start something and take 150 classes in a year, like accidentally. Oh no, for sure. not. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, no, There's no, a mentality no. that goes with that. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, so where are you guys at now? Where do you live now? We live in Westport, Connecticut still. So that's a, is that, that's not where you're from. Where are you from? I grew up in Manhattan. Oh, so you're like, you're one of the unicorns. You're one of the rare people that I meet that's a New Yorker from New York. Yep. I actually born and bred there all my life. And um, Westport's only an hour outside Manhattan. So we're we're, we're a suburb. We're a bedroom community to the city. My parents still live in Manhattan. What what part of Manhattan? Like, where did you live in the city? Upper East Side. Upper East Side. And did you Shocking, have... Shocking, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I was, uh, I was, I had been interviewing for a job and that was where I was looking to live a few years ago because it was by the park and it seemed like a very lovely part of the city. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, I loved it. it. It's a little bit more residential on the Upper East. Yeah, than, that's why um, I was looking at it. Yeah. And so did you have brothers and sisters? Like, what was it like? I do. I have a brother who's nine years younger than I am. Whoa. Um, yeah, no, that was interesting because by the time he was nine years old, I was in college and out of the house. <laughs> so I was more like, you know, I mean, now it's different, but back then my, as my mom would say, like, I thought I was his mother. Yeah. So were, what was, were you guys, you were, were you kind of close growing up or no? Like, did, like, were you watching him and doing stuff with him or were you at that point sort of doing your, I mean, I definitely was watching him and babysitting for him and, loving on him but we weren't like close friends close because um there was that huge age difference which now that i'm 44 and he is 35 isn't such a big deal um and now i would say it's more of a you know a friend relationship um but uh also i think generally speaking boys tend to um, mature a little more slowly than girls do. So not only was there a nine-year age gap between us, but I was really mature for my age, and he was probably on the immature side for his <laughs> yeah. age. So. It's interesting. Like, my sister and I, she's only five years older than me, but we weren't particularly close when we were younger. And, like, developing a, a friendship with your sibling and later in life is sort of, it's both a weird phenomenon and kind of a cool phenomenon. 
Definitely. Definitely. I mean, now he's married and they're about to have a baby in August. So he's like, you know, joining the world that I've been living in for 10 years. Yeah. And so uh, what did your parents do? My pa- my dad is uh, an orthopedic surgeon. Wow. And my mother is an actress. Really? Yes. What, what does she She's do? not famous. She's That's okay. Hey, I'm a writer and not famous. So that all works <laughs> <you know>. out. <laughs> um, she, she did a lot of commercials, print ads. She was on a soap opera called Search for Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Years ago. Yeah. Back when um, soap operas were a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, she was a working actress, just not Susan Sarandon. I mean... I feel like that's kind of the best way to do things because you get mm-hmm. to do what you love, but also you get to go to the store. Totally. <laughs> 100%. And so what was it like? What were you like as a kid pre, pre-brother pre showing up? I was a entertainer. Really? I was like the kid who would like at the restaurant, like dance and sing for people and like talk to people at the table next to us. And <laughs> whether I, they wanted that or not. What's that? Whether they wanted that or not. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> I have a French fry. Um, but no, I, um, I was always a very outgoing, um, you know, I had a big personality. I love to tell stories. Um, but I was also very, as I was growing up, I was also a very type A. I was a good girl. I did well in school. I behaved. I didn't do drugs, that kind of thing. So it's like, were you more like your mother or your father? Because I've known, I've known plenty of people in theater and they tend to have big personalities. So if you don't know me well, you would say I'm more like my mother because our outward personality is much more similar. My dad's more of a reserved, quieter person. Um, However, my inner personality is much more like my father's. We are both extremely type A, anally compulsive, motivated, ambitious, and that's what drives us in life. My dad and I just get each other, whereas my mom and I, just on an outward basis, our like personality, sense of humor, are much more similar. So I'm I'm a mix of both. And so, which that gets back to the bar class too. When you said you did 150, I'm like, well, that's you have to be driven. There's something inside people that you're one of those people that like. And both of my parents are very into fitness. Um, my dad is a super athlete. He has run, I think, I don't know, seven marathons, done a couple of triathlons. He actually ran a 60 mile marathon in Poland. Um, so nobody's messing around in your family. What? No, yeah, nobody's messing messing around. around. My mom is like a yoga goddess. She (laughs) used to be a step class goddess and now she's a yoga goddess. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. That's a lot coming at you as a kid. You know, my mom is not, my mom is very into fitness and taking care of herself, but she is not a super type A, anally compulsive person. She's a much more chill in that way than my dad is. So, um, and, and actually, interestingly, even though my dad is that way, 
he was never the type to demand that of his children. That's good. Sort of like if you were that way, you were that way. And if you were not, you were not. My brother's not that way. Yeah. So it was good. They don't care. And so as you were like getting into high school and and beginning to, you know, sort of find out who you were going to start to be as an adult, like were they, I'm assuming with an actress mother that like, as you were sort of going into this creative space that they were supportive of that. Like that was. Oh yeah. My parents were supportive of whatever we wanted to do. That's great. Yeah. I mean, things sound pretty good in childhood. Oh yeah. No, Good, good family. As my, as my husband said, and you know, the word, I, the word normal is so subjective, but like you have the most normal family of anyone I've ever met. He's been saying that ever since he met me. <laughs> so that means we're very like everything out on the table in my family. Nobody like holds on to things and then dumps it like three years later. Yeah. If someone doesn't like something, they can't hold it in for more than 25 seconds. <laughs> but that's, I think we that's just get really... it all out and then we're good to go. That's healthy though. I feel like that's healthy. Totally. Because uh, I come from a different family. Same with my husband. Like, yeah, that hasn't worked out so well all the time. Exactly. <laughs> so when, like, what were you like in high school? Were you like a theater kid? No, I was a popular girl. I'm going to be honest. I love, I love that the answer is like, no, no, I didn't do theater. I was popular. <laughs> I did do theater, but right, right. Because no theater, no theater popular. Yeah. Um, I did do some theater. Um, I was in a couple of plays in high school and I think I was in one in college. I mean, no, it was definitely in one in college. I'm trying to think if there were any more, but I think I was just in one in college. Um, but it wasn't my thing. I... I was I was sporty. I played field hockey, lacrosse, oh, field hockey. that kind of tennis, that kind of stuff. I was the student manager for the field hockey team in college. I knew nothing about it. I got injured, so I couldn't play baseball anymore. And I thought I would just help out. You knew the there program. were girls with short skirts running around. My best friend in the dorm was a field hockey player, and she's like, "We need help." And I thought, "Well, I'll go help." So I ended up Great. like. Yeah, I ended up being the guy that like warmed up the goalies and then I'd have to climb up the big tower and videotape the games for the coaches. Um, That's hysterical. Yeah, and I would, when I watched that game, I was in awe of people that played that because if you don't know anything about it, like that game is dangerous as hell. Like, the Totally, ball- when you think back on it, just a bunch of women running around like flailing sticks at each other. With that ball, it was a rock hard ball. And, totally. And when you're in a corner, you got the person who's just on the far post with her head down and her stick and somebody's smashing a ball at her as hard as she can't. I thought, well, that's, this is another one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I, I couldn't do any of that. Like, <laughs> that. And you know, you see, you know, somebody gets a high stick in the face. Like I saw that a couple times. Like, so I have the utmost respect for people that play field hockey. So you did that in high school. Yes. And then as you're making your decision to go to college, like, what are you thinking? Like, are you, like, hey, I'm going to, like, what, what did you want to be? Like, what were you going to college to do? Oh, I always knew, for the most part, that I wanted to be in journalism in some way. I didn't know in what capacity, um, whether it was going to be magazines or TV or radio. or um, I don't think I actually ever really thought at that stage about writing a book. But um, I think I more thought I wanted to be a television personality 
Although as I began to realize that that took living in like Idaho and, you know, things like that, starting out in these random markets, um, it became less and less appealing. So why journalism? Like, what is it like, what, what made you gravitate towards that? There are just very few people that are like, writers generally want to do books or things like that. So what was it about journalism that caught you? I guess I just love telling stories. I'm interested in people and what makes them tick. And I like asking questions and finding out about people. Um, usually when I first meet someone and, and more than one person has told this about me, <laughs> it's like 20 questions. Like I, 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 it's like a shakedown. I have to know everything about you. <laughs> yeah. In 20 seconds flat. Um, I am no, familiar with I, that. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I like interviewing people. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Yeah, it's, I've always told people, like, journalism to like, I wanted to be a writer as a kid, but I was like, well, that's not a job. And so journalism was sort of where I ended up like, Oh, these, these people I know get paid for doing stuff. I wasn't sure how somebody who wrote a book got paid. Right. There wasn't like, yeah, right. (laughs) Right. And there's no like job. A few of them do. Yeah. And, but like, you don't go to school, like you can go to school to be a a doctor. Right. And there's a path, do this, do this, do this. And then you're now certified as a doctor. Exactly. Uh, it's just that easy. A, yeah. Yes. It's exactly that easy. And, and for 14 years. Um, and as an author, they're like, there's not like a way it's like, uh, there's not, I didn't know how to do it. So journalism to me felt like a good path to like get paid to write. Yeah. As it turned out, that was also a terrible idea. Right. Right. <laughs> I didn't know. So, well, yeah. So when you, when you, when you're, uh, when you're looking to go to college, were you going to study journalism um, English language and literature. Is that is what you major. wanted to, or is that what you ended up studying? No, that was my, that was what I wanted to study. So you, so you thought journalism, but I'm going to go, why, why, uh, language and literature? Um, yeah, I mean, liberal arts schools that I applied to didn't have journalism majors, so, or, or minors. So it wasn't an offer. Um, I didn't go to a, 
a school that had a journalism wing to it. So I, uh, I just cast the net wide and did English language and literature with an ethics minor. Really? Because I'm so ethical. So you were preparing for journalism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, and I we were, those two and made my own journalism. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of what you have, like, the, I mean, these days there's very few journalism places, but that's sort of a path that I think a lot of people go through. Um, what was the, what was the program like? You were at Smith, right? I was at Smith College. So what was, um, it was what, amazing. I mean, it's a great school, um, wonderful teachers in the English department and really taught me how to hone my writing skills there. That's interesting. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is that typically literature courses, literature degrees don't teach you to write. They teach you to analyze text and that like creative writing is where you learn all that stuff. But Smith, you got, did you get, you got both of that kind of stuff? Like was there yeah, creative writing really stuff in it? I really felt like they, they taught, I mean, listen, you have to have a certain amount of talent as a writer to begin with. And I went to a high school that was very strong. And um, when I went to college, my writing skills were far and above most of my peers. That was something my high school was very strong with. So, um, but definitely, I think that they honed my actual writing skills there. Yes, for sure. That's great. Yeah. I had some teachers, professors. I've told this story. I showed up at my, I was, you know, when you're in high school, I did not, I went to just a regular public high school. And uh, if you're a good writer in an English class, the teachers just kind of like, don't really mess with you too much because they're trying to teach the kids that struggle. So you think you're a really good writer. And my high school English teacher said, go take my, my mentor. Her mentor was at the university I was at. And I took his class and I failed it. And I was like, I don't think I'm very good at this writing thing. <laughs> like, right. my, English, my English teacher sent me to like her teacher and he was like, you're not, this is not good. You have a long way to go. So as you're finishing up school, what do you think, like, what are you thinking about with a job? Like you have this English language degree, like what's the goal? What's the plan? So my initial plan was that I thought I wanted to be a radio sportscaster. Okay. So you've moved from TV personality now to radio sports. Radio sportscaster. (laughs) But here's the thing about that. You have to know a lot about sports. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's a catch. I knew a ton about baseball. I was a big baseball fan and I've watched baseball all my life, but that was sort of where my knowledge ended. I had minimal knowledge of things like football and basketball. Now I'm actually much more into basketball, but I have never been into football and all the other sports that exist. <laughs> and so that didn't seem like it was going to be that successful of a route for me. So I applied to jobs in TV, not on on air, but, you know, more like production assistant to the executive producer jobs. And I was very lucky to get a job at ABC News uh, working for Peter Jennings. And what did you do there? Like what was the job? I was assistant to the executive producer of his documentary show. So... I washed people's grapes and I um, answered the telephone and I ordered supplies and um, no, I mean, I got, I did a lot of that stuff. And then I also 
got to go on shoots and help out the producers and things like that. It's like, a you know, I've told people when I worked at Wired, I was in graduate school and the editorial assistant is the, I think, the equivalent to executive assistant. Like I yeah, opened, like all, production I, assistant, yeah, opened all the mail. Like I collected it's everything. It's an entry level job. I mean, yeah. you're not producing television specials when you jump out of college. <laughs> and I, but I told people like I learned more about storytelling and how magazines work. And like that year that I did that. hundred uh, percent. And you also, I just think develop life skills, like learning how to return emails properly and, you know, just, and interacting with people and yeah, it's done. You know, for me, it was a, you know, again, just having come from this small town, like I didn't really know how any of that stuff worked. I didn't know, I knew I wanted to do it and you get to be in all the meetings because you're literally the person that's doing the thing that the people who are running the show don't have time to do. Right. So it's like, get this contract, call these four people, arrange this thing. And you sort Definitely. of Definitely. You have more access than people sometimes who are higher up than you just because they're not, you know, yeah. the right hand person to the to the main boss. It's crazy. I, you know, what, so what when you were in this is just like total. This is my nerd question. Like yeah. what was who was the cool like what was the coolest experience you had when you were doing that where you were like, holy shit, this is I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm 22 years old. I got to meet John McCain, who was one of the nicest guys ever in the existence of the world. That's And cool. we worked at our ABC office was um, sort of off the beaten path of where the main ABC offices <laughs> are. We were on West End Avenue and in our building, they filmed like The View and um, actually one of the soap operas that's on ABC. So we were in this like sort of small office space. So it wasn't this bustling newsroom. And all of a sudden, John McCain walks in and he's sitting like literally just with me right there in the waiting room, you know, and there's nobody else to chat with or, you know, yeah. any anyone else around. So it was really, um, really just he, he's whether I agree with his politics or not, or agreed with them or not, um, you know, he, he was a fascinating, fascinating man. It's, uh, that was the, well, I think back on those times and it, that was sort of at least, cause I ended up, you know, writing at Wired, you know, eventually became a writer and you, when you're young, or at least when I was young, I would initially get starstruck by people like that. And like being in that sort of assistant position, you sort of learn after a while, like, okay, this is, these are just regular people doing regular stuff. It just happens to be public. It right. just, and it makes you feel more co- like, okay, I got this. I understand this. This is something that I fit into. You know, it, this is not for special people. Like anybody can do this job that I'm doing. Exactly. You, yeah. So how long did you do that? How long were you producing with that? I'm not producing the executive assistant. How long were you doing? I was there for two years and then realized that television was not really what I wanted to do. I sort of looked up the ladder at the people above me and didn't want their jobs. (laughs) It's a clear sign. Why not? What was it about Um, it that you were like, nope? You know, I think that um, in that line of work, you are sort of shackled to your job for better or worse. Um, And a lot of times it was worse. And (laughs) it was a very like corporate red tape environment. Um, 
everything had to pass by 10 people before you could actually do, you know, anything. And um, a lot of the people didn't seem happy in life. Yeah. (laughs) And so I knew at that point, I think that writing was more my thing. And that was when I left and decided to pursue magazine writing. And I got a job as the editor. Uh, I was moving out of the city at the time to the suburbs, to Westchester. um, And I applied to a job to be an editor at a magazine. I was 24 years old. I had never worked in a magazine before. (laughs) And I applied and I was very lucky that the publisher took to me and um, hired me. And so had you done any writing outside of college? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> so how I was that? on the high school and college newspapers. Um, I never wrote when I was at ABC News. That wasn't, you know, right. never wrote anything more than an email or a letter right. to my boss's insurance company. Um, <laughs> and I, I, she, she clearly saw something in me because she is now my mother-in-law. Really? Yes. So you didn't know, like... Did you I, know I her? did not know her. I did applied you? to this job with this woman, Marianne Liebert. You'll notice we have the same last name. I do notice that. She owns my mother-in-law's a medical publishing company, medical journals. Um, and she had this one magazine that was a luxury lifestyle magazine in Westchester called The Wag. It was kind of her baby. It was like her fun magazine that she did. And the editor left, was leaving. And I went in and met her and we took to each other and she hired me. And thereafter I met her son. Really? My now husband who worked at the company. So that's no a good, works at the company. That was a good job. Totally. <laughs> yep. Got a job and a husband all at once. It set the whole. And so, so what, what it's a, it's a, it was a medical publishing company. Is that what you said? That was mostly what she does is medical journals. She does a few law journals and things like that, but she had this one magazine, which was a luxury lifestyle magazine, like completely different fashion, travel, celebrity profiles, things like that, which was unlike everything else, but it was just sort of a fun, it was like her baby. It was a fun thing that she did. And like anything else she did. And um, she needed a new editor. Have you asked like what possessed her to like, that's a weird thing to do. Like I'm going to do these journals and then I'm also going to have this other thing. Have you she's ever asked? She's a little bit of both. I mean, she's yeah. married to a doctor. She's knows a lot about the medical world, obviously, but she also loves beauty and fashion and travel and things like that. So it was just, you know, another part of her personality, I guess. And so what did, so what did you do? Were you running the show there? Yeah. So she hired me with the title associate editor because I was 24 Uh and I had never worked in a magazine before, but there was no one above me. (laughs) So after about a year, I was like, can I just have the title of editor in chief now? And she was like, yep. That's funny. 
That is a, uh, this is a story I've never heard. Still wasn't with her son yet. So it wasn't even nepotism. Sure. sure. (laughs) Well, I'm assuming if she's running a business, that wouldn't have mattered anyway. Like if you were not good at it, she'd have been like, yeah, you could be my daughter-in-law, but (laughs) I'm going to find somebody else to handle the business side of things. Absolutely. So what are you doing when you're there? Like you show up, you're 24, you don't know shit about anything. Like how do you, like, what are, what's that first, what's the beginning of that like? I really basically just jumped right in. I mean, there were people at the company who were like vice presidents at the general Marianne Liebert Inc. company who did, of course, step in and give a little guidance um, and said, here are the sections of the magazine and here's what you're responsible for and what you have to do. And I had some freelance writers. I wrote a lot of the magazine myself. I captioned all the photos in the beginning. Ultimately, after a little time, I had a small team who was working for me, who was selling ads and, and someone who ended up being more like an assistant who ended up taking over the photo captioning and, you know, the list of charity events and things like that. And then I could focus more on getting a celebrity for the profile. We had a celebrity who lived in Westchester on every cover. Uh-huh. So often I wanted to write the article because it was a <laughs> person <laughs> right because now you get to be in the room but also be the person that's making the decisions way exactly. better than the assistant so, yeah <laughs> you know i got to interview so many cool people when i was there um everyone from chevy chase to hillary clinton to marlo thomas um vera wang my god the list goes on paul is on Did you ever like have moments? Because you're like a kid at this point, and just sort of look around and go, "How the hell did this happen?" No, (laughs) I'm more like that now that I'm older. (laughs) Um, I think then you're just you just dive in and you're like young and naive and you're just going with it. One very cool thing that happened was I so I we were going to interview Chevy Chase for the cover. And um, I was going to his house. I went to his house, you know, I'm this young 24 year old girl in my cute little skirt and whatever. And I, I do the interview. And the next day he calls Marianne Liebert, my not yet mother-in-law, the publisher. And he says, you know, Emily came to interview me yesterday. I'd like to see the article before it goes to print. Really? You know, I'm this like two-year-old basically showing up at his house. He has no idea what I'm going to write. And Marianne says, well, you know, my mother-in-law Marianne says, well, you know, we don't normally show the cover profiles, but, you know, if you're really set on it, we can make an exception. So I write the article and she sends it to him. And like a few days later, I'm at home in my house and the phone rings at like eight o'clock in the morning and I pick up and he's like, Emily... Chevy Chase. I'm like, Chev, what's up? <laughs> like 8 a.m. in the morning on my house phone. He's like, listen, I loved the article. It was really great. I have a few little suggestions, few little edits. Could you come over today and we'll go over them? This feels weird. Sure. <laughs> uh, no problem. No, it wasn't weird. He's okay. married, kids, everything's okay. on the up and up. Had a few edits. We lived like five minutes away from each other. So he's like, come over. We'll go over the edits. So he has actually printed out my article. And in his handwriting, he has made little notes on it. 
which of course I now have framed with a photo of him. <laughs> but he has edited my article. And at the end, at the bottom, he has written. And when we were done with the interview, Chevy politely offered me a double bourbon and gave me my blouse back. <laughs> so I have this page now framed That's with funny. the cover of that magazine because obviously he did not take my blouse <laughs> right. or give me a double bourbon, but he's very, very funny. And most people don't know this, but he was actually only on Saturday Night Live for one year. Yeah. And he was a writer on the show. Yeah. So he's actually a very talented writer. And he, yeah. it wasn't a fluke that he was editing, you know, the article. Yeah, it's, you know, this, this as an aside, obviously, you know him, but, but like following his career and sort of the ups and downs and the recent stuff that's going on. Like, yeah, he was, I mean, back when I was growing up, like he was the biggest thing. And, yeah. you know, it's like him and Eddie Murphy. Those were like the two biggest people of my childhood. Exactly. Uh, uh, with their movies. And in fact, I loved him on Community. In fact, that was what my favorite role that he ever did was, was Community. So you do that for how long? Like you're, you're sort of, you, how long are you at that magazine? I'm there for five years. And what's the transition? Like what, like what, like. You're, I'm assuming you're getting more comfortable writing. You're sort of understanding the industry more. Like that's sort of your gig. Like Yeah, by you, this point, I've been doing it for five years and it's, I am loving every minute of it, but it's becoming less and less challenging right. for me. Um, and at this point, I'm starting to think that I might want to write a book. Um, at this point, I am also engaged to my boss's son and I'm thinking maybe not the best idea to have my mother-in-law as my boss. That's very smart. It sort of all came to fruition at the same time. Yeah. And um, so I decided to leave. At this point, you could still make good money as a freelance writer. <laughs> yeah. And you're I had like, already right started writing for other publications, like national publications yeah. as well on the side. So I left the job and I was freelance writing full time. I was a travel writer for many years. I was still writing celebrity profiles, fashion, beauty. I was writing for Elite Traveler and Cottages and Gardens and Rob Report and Gotham and Huffington Post. And I was writing for an, a ton of different Oprah, Oprah's um, website and things like that. So I was writing freelance all the time. And then I got the opportunity to edit a book for Carrie Kennedy. Well, how does that happen? Robert F. Kennedy, Robert and Ethel Kennedy's daughter. Yeah. How does that come about? She was my neighbor. <laughs> you live in a good place. She and Andrew <laughs> Cuomo, New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, when they were married many years ago, were my neighbors in Westchester. And we got to know them and they became friends. And um, Carrie knew that I was a writer, obviously, and she got a book deal and she wanted someone outside of the publishing house to edit it first. And yeah. so she hired me to do that. And that really gave me my first taste of the book literary world. And after that was when I decided I was going to write my own book. So when you're editing, like when you, cause you're about, 
I mean, you've been, it's been about 10 years out of college, right? You've been out for a while. Like you're an adult at this point and you sit down to edit the book. How different was that experience than like what you had been doing with magazine writing? Cause they're different beasts. Like they're completely different beasts in my, it's my definitely opinion. different. I mean, I think if you're a good editor, you're a good editor. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely different. I mean, one is a much larger scope in her case it wasn't that much different because she was doing a book of um, all separate little interviews. Uh, it was called being Catholic now. And it was, I think it was either 20 or 25, maybe more. God, were there more? There may have been 50. Um, oh I can't remember how many there were, but they were all interviews with prominent people who were Catholics who were either devout or had, you know, sort of left the faith in some way, anything from actors and actresses to politicians to priests. Um, and uh, she would do the interview with them and then it would be transcribed and sent to me and then I would edit it and then send it to her and she would edit it and then we'd go back and forth. Um, and then of course, once they were all done, we read the book through, you know, many times and edited it. But it was almost like magazine writing yeah. or at least profile writing because yeah. that's what each individual one was. So it wasn't like writing a novel or editing a novel, which is. Yeah. But that's probably a good transition from where you were to sort of. Definitely. Yeah. To understand the book industry. Like that's a pretty good, I don't know whether you did this on purpose or not, but that's a pretty good through line for like. Definitely not. It's worked out well. <laughs> that's the one theme that always emerges on this show with writers is like, I had no idea. Like I was just doing the thing in front of me and that led to the next thing in front of me. Yep. All of a sudden I have a career and I'm not exactly sure. It's why it's people hard to make a plan for something like this because it's just so unpredictable how yeah. things are going to play out. And that's sort of the point that I was about, like, you can't go to college to be an author. Like, there's just, nobody can tell you, do these five things and you'll become an author because that's not, no, very few people come to that world in the same way, right. right? Like, unless you get an MFA, most, which most of us don't do, most of us just kind of like stumble through shit and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, I'm a writer. Like, this is now, this is now the thing that I do. Exactly. And once you're in it, you don't have any other skills, so you can't really go do other stuff. <laughs> like once you're far enough into it, you're like, I guess this is what I am now. Totally. This is it now. I mean <laughs> yeah. like if the world ends, I can't farm. I have not no gonna skills. be a doctor at this point. <laughs> yeah. So you do that book and uh what comes after that? Because that like I would assume at that point it opens up some opportunities for you. Like, do I become an editor? Do I go work in the publishing world? Like, do I keep freelancing? Yeah. So after that, I decided I wanted to write my own book. I wanted to write a novel. So I wrote a novel, which has never seen the light of day. <laughs> that is also a common tale. <laughs> but I did get an agent with it. Um, and that was actually my decision that it never saw the light of day. Um, I got an agent with this novel. And as we were editing it and getting it ready to submit to editors at publishing houses, I came up with the idea for Facebook Fairy Tales, which was actually my first book. Um, it was when Facebook was sort of exploding in the media and coming out into the real world, you know, not just at colleges anymore. And I said to my agent, I'm like, I feel like there have to be some really amazing 
stories coming from Facebook connections. And it seems like it would make a great book. And she said, find a few stories. If you think they're out there, go find them. And I did. And she said, okay, let's put aside the novel for right now because this is time sensitive. And she sold that book very quickly. And I was very lucky that Facebook got behind the book and they gave me an interview for the foreword with Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, cool. Um, which was a big coup because he, he was very reticent at the time or even yeah. more reticent than he is now. And he really hadn't done a lot of big interviews. I think he had done a couple with like, I don't know, like Leslie Stahl and Oprah or something. And yeah. so it was a real coup to be able to interview him. And um, yeah, so that book came out. That got me a lot of publicity. I was on the Today Show and Rachel Ray and Anderson Cooper. It was really like a chicken soup for the soul with a Facebook twist. And that's just fodder for media. Right. So after that came out, I decided that I no longer liked the original novel and that I wanted to write a new novel. But, so, and, but, but hang on. So Facebook fairy tales is nonfiction. So you put the yes, novel that away. That is narrative nonfiction. Yeah, so that so was you, 25 amazing stories that came from Facebook connections. So you do that. And I talk about this with folks because every once in a while, somebody's first book is like super popular and that's both great, but it's also a little terrifying because now you have a bar. Like this yep. is, this is what agents and publishers expect. Like what's Facebook fairy tales two going to be. Exactly. And I did think that I might do a sequel to it, but it turns out that I ended up writing a novel. Um, and your agent, your agent said that's a good idea or did you have to get a different agent to do that? You know, it's funny. She, she thought it was a fine idea. I ended up switching agents for other reasons. Yeah. Um, but I did end up switching agents at that point and I'm, and I'm now with that agent same agent that I ended up switching to for the last 10 years. It's just, it's hard, right? Because agents handle different kinds of books and. Exactly. That was really what it came down to. It was just that this agent was more um, YA and yeah. sort of a little bit of chiclet. And I'm, I wanted to write more up, upmarket women's fiction. Yeah. And so I, and I also wanted more of a full service agency. So mm -hmm. I'm with paradigm, which is, one of the top five, it's like William Morris, Endeavor, CAA, ICM, those, and it's a talent agency as well. Um, so yeah, so then I ended up writing a novel, which was You Knew Me When, which was my second book, first novel. And I got a two book deal at Penguin Random House with that book, those two books, for those two books, You Knew Me When and When We Fall, which was so my as you were doing that, as you like when you went when you went for those meetings, I'm always fascinated by this stuff. When you go for those meetings, did they see you as the Facebook fairy tales person, or were they like, okay, this is something completely different? So because it that success doesn't all it did not matter that I had written the Facebook fairy tale book at all. Right. So much. you were as far as they were concerned, you're a new writer because I your am audience a is not, author. Yeah. Yep. It's so weird, right? Like this is one of those things they don't tell you is that like if you switch genres or if you switch things. Unless you're lucky. But like if Stephen King went out and wrote a nonfiction book now, yeah, his fans would read it. But at the beginning, fans right. don't always follow you if you change things. That's exactly right. So, Were you scared? Or were you like, screw it, this is what I want no, to do? No, because the Facebook fairy tale thing I felt like was more of a one-off and novel writing was what I really wanted gotcha. to do. So I was thrilled and excited yeah. when I got that deal. 
And so you write these books. And so like what happened? Because then you start like those next four or five years, you're cranking stuff out. Yeah. So I wrote, you knew me when, and when we fall, then I got another two book deal with Penguin Random House for my third and fourth novel, fourth and fifth book, um, which was The Secrets We Keep and Some Women. And then... Were they all related? To not switch genres completely, but add a bit of edge and a bit of suspense to my novels. And I decided at that time also that it was a good time to switch publishing houses and kind of breathe a different life into these books. And so I went over to Simon & Schuster for my last novel, Pretty Revenge, which came out summer 2019, and my current novel, which just came out June 2nd, Perfectly Famous. So are these, are the books... And I've talked to like people that get these that sort of do this sort of that work in a genre. Are they all standalone or were you like, as you were working with your agent and, and the publishers, were they like, here's what we'd like to see? Or did they give you autonomy to sort of once the book, once the first book came out, they were like, yeah, we like what you're doing. Just keep doing that. Do, do whatever um, you want to do. They are all standalone. None of them are sequels. I, for, you knew me when the very first book, you have to write the whole book to get the deal. Right. So that book was written. Right. And I needed to share a fleshed out idea for when we fall, those secrets we keep in some women, because I was with the same editor. So for those, you just give them an outline and right. they say, okay, go ahead. Um, when I switched from Penguin Random House to Simon and Schuster, I had to write a whole book again. So I wrote Pretty Revenge and that was how I got the book deal with a new editor at Simon & Schuster at Gallery, is my imprint, Simon & Schuster. And then, again, since I was already there, I just had to do an outline for Perfectly Famous. Yeah, it, what am I, what are the... And now it's that way moving forward. If you yeah. stick with your same editor in-house, you just have to give them an idea, an outline, sometimes like a couple sample chapters, but you don't right. have to write the book. Yeah, it's, that, it's always fascinating to me, like the begin like... I do nonfiction. So you can sell all your stuff with just proposals. Like that's, you don't ever have to write anything. Right. Well, that's how I sold Facebook fairy tales. Right. Yeah. With a proposal and like two sample chapters. Yeah. It's always, whenever, whenever I talk to fiction writers and I hear the shit they got to go through, like I had to write the whole novel and then do whatever. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, you know, I spent three months and I, that my proposal was done. Like that was it. Yeah. I mean, I think with nonfiction, unless it's narrative nonfiction, even in which case you can still sell it on a proposal, but you, it's not as much about the writing and the story as it is about the topic. Right. Right. And the timing. Whereas with fiction, you gotta be a good writer. Right. And they need to see, and they need to see that you can follow through to the end and that the plot twists and the arcs are going to come in the right place. And that, the ending is going to be, you know, good. So as you, so as you're doing this, like as you start this sort of in, in 2013, I guess probably 2012, when you start writing the thing, uh, again, like you've so you went magazine and now you're editing and then you did nonfiction. Like when you started the novel stuff, like did you know what you were doing? Like did you sit down and go, I have a pretty good idea of how to put together a novel. Not really. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I was a reader, but I I didn't take any, I never took any creative writing courses or, you know, had written any short stories or anything really. 
I legitimately just dove in and tried to write a book. And so how did that go? Apparently it went well. I mean, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> well, that's the outcome though. But as you're in it, were you like, I don't really, like, how do you, or did you just sort of go with, well, I'm a reader and this is sort of what I think should happen? So I already had an agent. And I think what I did was I wrote five chapters, sent it to her, then wrote half the book, sent it to her, and sort of did it like that. Yeah. So she kind of guided me along the way, certainly did, with the first book. So you did take classes. You just took it from your agent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's. I mean, it, because who's also never written a book, by the way. <laughs> but it's in. You know, this is. I was interviewing a woman named Stephanie Story. She was a a producer. She did like the uh, writers' room and uh, Arsenio Hall show and stuff. And oh, she yeah. said, she said the best. She said, I learned more about storytelling by sitting in a writer's room and just watching them put the cards up and discuss how, like transitions and stuff like that. She's yeah. like, that was that was when I under because she had never written anything where she hadn't she wasn't a writer she wasn't a novelist and then her first book was a bestseller because she's like well I had 10 years of learning how stories yeah. were put together and so I sort I of had an outline I mean I, I did have an outline that my agent had looked at and you know quote unquote approved yeah and then, but you need that person going back and forth with you to sort of say oh this is where this twist needs to happen and this yes. kind of, like this is sort of the part of, you know page in that 40 page range we need this kind of thing to start happening like because there is a structure like and if you do it well, readers don't know the structure's happening. But I would think sitting down to write, having not done it, it's one of those, it's very helpful to have people doing that. Yeah, exactly. And then you get to, it. my friend Janelle, like who did a pretty thing, like she's got four and she's like, you know, it was around the fourth, third or fourth book. She was like, okay, I now know the structure. Like I can now sort yeah, of Yeah, definitely. And, now, now I get it. Yeah. And like, it's now it's more about the ideas and the characters and less stress about like what goes where. Yep. So you're doing that, uh, the books, like the first couple books come out and uh, they do okay or they do, they do well and, 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 and you think this is going to be the career path, right? Like this yeah, is, for you're sure. now in, like that's what you, really well. and that's what you want to do. Like you're like, cause there aren't that many people that just get to write novels. Like it's. There are not. And I know that I'm lucky. Yeah, that's great. But that's great. I mean, it's lucky, but also not lucky, right? Like some of it is connections and some of it is being good and some of it's timing and some of it is luck like this industry is really weird yeah for sure there's a lot that goes into it and particularly now right like with it's, every i mean i i don't i don't even know that i like, i don't know how people get books sold <laughs> these days it is really really difficult it was hard when i first sold my books but it is 20 times harder now yeah and where do you buy like when the pandemic happened, like suddenly there weren't even bookstores, right? Like, it's like, holy yep. shit, this whole industry. And yet people seem to be reading and people, you know, you're home. So, they are, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and audiobooks too. Like, do you, do you, are yours audiobooks as well? Yes. Mine are all audio. Um, and people ask me all the time, I do not listen to audiobooks, but all of my books are audiobooks. Do you do, do you do the voices or do they have, or do you read it? Nope. Or I don't do the voices, but I do get to pick. Who, who does? It's one of my favorite things. I was telling somebody the other day, like one of the best parts about audiobooks these days is they've gone from just straight reading into treating them like audio plays. Like totally. You know, and the person who, um, the people, the two women who did Perfectly Famous were awesome. Um, I get three choices for each of the characters and then I, I rank them. 
That's great. And it, I mean, it makes, it's like, it's very, to me, it's like a, when you get a good one, it's like a book that's turned into a TV show or a movie. Like it's totally. different. And when you get a bad one, it's terrible. Yeah. But I just mean like, it's a di- like, there's a couple, there's a couple voice actresses who I don't even care what the book is. I will totally because so I know to you talk about it, anything. Yeah. And there's this woman, she'll do like, she'll do 30 voices. And I'm just like, I can't even. That's amazing. It's amazing. She's won like the Audible Voice Awards like the last five years. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, there's, I don't know anybody else on the planet that can do that. And they're distinctive. And it's just that to me as a writer is real. like that makes me happy that there's like this new art form that comes out of the books that, you know you can have these audio plays that people can also listen to. That's your book. I know it's very cool. Why don't you listen? I would think that I would, why don't you listen to audiobooks? I, I'm intrigued. Never, I wouldn't listen to them in the house and I'm never in the car for that long. So you don't like if you're, I guess if you're, I also like something about read, like I, I like the physical aspect of reading. Yeah. That's good. As a, I, well, I go hiking and I'll like pop in an audiobook and like my dog and I'll hit the woods for two hours and like, That's I'll just interesting. get. Like yeah. if I go walking or running, I usually want to listen to music, like something that, I don't know, pumps me up. <laughs> my, at, when I do lifting at the gym, people are always like, what are you listening to? And I'm like, I have an audiobook on. So I'm literally training <laughs> Olympic listening, listening to an audiobook because that's the sort of joy that I like, I don't, I don't really like music, which is a weird thing I know, but like, I would much rather listen to a good audiobook. I like to hear that. Yeah. It's, it is. And it's apparently these are like, that's a big thing now. Like audiobooks are like taking off. Oh yeah, pandemic, for sure. Which is weird because I would think like you said, you don't, I don't listen to them when I'm in the house. I know some people do that. That surprises me. Yeah. I'm never in one room or one place enough for a long right. enough. Well, you don't seem like somebody that sits down a lot. No, I don't. Yeah. So that would be a miracle. Difficult. I've been sitting for this long talking to you. Yeah, I know. I'm surprised that I didn't like you weren't walking across the room and I was getting you from a distance. So <laughs> you're, so the, the book now is called Perfectly Famous. When did that come out? Did it hit before the pandemic? No, it came out June 2nd. Oh, God. So like you so came out very much during the pandemic and also on Blackout Tuesday. Oh, that's great. It's great for a book. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's amazing. And I mean, at least you had the, at least you have had the joy of seeing your book in, in a bookstore before, but it's really painful to finish a project and then have it just, it's there, but like, you don't really get to do anything with it. Yep. I mean, I did a great virtual tour, which is still going on. So that's been awesome. And the nice silver lining about that is that unlike a physical tour, people can join from anywhere. Right. Anyone can hop on an Instagram live. Not everyone's going to come to my event in, you know, California or my event in, you know, wherever, Chicago. It is. So well, that's been nice. Yeah. Like I've interviewed people from all over the world and it's just, you know, I, I found that to be quite lovely because I would never be interviewing people in London because they'd exactly. be doing their stuff. I, but I, it doesn't take the place of actually meeting your readers and getting to interact with them, of course. And hopefully, eventually, that will happen again. See, and this is always, this is, there's two kinds of, I think there's two kinds of writers. So you like, you like going out and being around the people and doing the I events do, around them. But Perfectly Famous is about a huge 
like major, major, you know, John Grisham level, Danielle Steele level crime writer who likes interacting with her readers from behind her computer screen at home and is very anxious when it comes to going to the events and meeting people. She doesn't like the fame, thus the title Perfectly Famous, which (laughs) meant to tell you that it's not perfect. (laughs) It's, yeah, I never liked that stuff. I've been so happy, I'm not, nobody's happy about the pandemic but like it's for me like working with all like doing all this stuff like virtually and like not really having to go out and do all that stuff i think it's lovely but that you know i know that i've interviewed several writers that are like oh my god i get my life is meeting these people because particularly i guess if you're in the sort of genre you have fans that have followed you so like these people like your work they like what you do they're They'd like yeah, to the interaction is definitely yeah. fun. I mean, I don't want to be doing, I don't want to be a celebrity. I don't want to be doing that 12 months out of the year. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in a writing hole and, you know, a ex, you know, an introvert for so much of the time, having that chunk of time, that month and a half to be an extrovert is fun. Yeah. <sighs> I'm an extrovert. And I do that stuff always like, in fact, I was telling, I, I told a story last night when our first book came out, we had a big, huge, we had like a hundred or 150 people at the, at the launch. We had our main character show up and we had him do all the talking and like he signed all the books. I don't know if John and I signed all of the books because people came to see him and we were like, no, that's perfect. Right. Like we had a big yeah. event. It was here and we could just stand off to the side and people were like, oh yeah, you guys wrote it, but he's the interesting one. <laughs> that was like our perfect book tour. That's uh, funny. So now I'm assuming this one's out. You've already started the next one. Yes, this one's out. I've started writing book number eight. So I'm working on that now. And my novel before Perfectly Famous, Pretty Revenge, was optioned for a TV series. So really? that is also on my plate at the moment. So are you, is that, is it, optioned right now or is it like attached to somebody or is it sort of optioned and there are writers attached so we are there going to be writing the pilot and um like prestige or is it network is it like streaming or it'll be no it'll be on on actual either cable network or um or you know a main broadcast Cool. Are you yeah. going to do any of the writing on that? Or is it this like, here's my thing, you guys do with it what you will? I will be an executive producer and I will weigh in as they ask me to and want me to. But I firmly believe that people are in their jobs for a reason and I don't <laughs> want to step on anyone's toes. I mean, you say that, but I look back and I'm like, you started in TV and then decided, hey, magazine, like you've never know. <laughs> yeah, you've jumped into different things and you're like, I didn't know what I was doing and then I did it. There was a brief moment where I said to my agent, like, do you think maybe like I should write? And she's like, nope, 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 nope. She's like, not with the first one. That's funny. Yeah. She's like, yeah. let the people who are professional do it and you write books. That's what you do. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, maybe good advice, but I also like, I knew if I asked, I'm like, at some point you thought like, I think maybe I could do this. Oh, I think for sure. Was, and yeah. down the road, it would, you know, it's definitely something I would consider. But right now I'm going to let the experts <laughs> do their thing. Well, and it's, you know, like you said, like, I'm not a novelist, but I thought I was going to write magazine stuff forever. And then I did it for a few years and was like, you know, 
I sort of know this process now and I sort of, yeah. it was fun and I love meeting people and I'm very curious about people's stories, but at a certain point you're like, well, 10,000 words isn't enough anymore. Right. And then you sort yeah, of, I think on. you always want to be challenging. Well, at least I always want to be challenging myself and pushing myself to the next level. I think if you're comfortable, too comfortable, it's not a good thing. Yeah. And as a writer, David Foster Wallace said, that the more you get into fiction and nonfiction, the more you realize they're the same thing, right? Like the, the writing is the same. It is just what, how, how we go about, like if I see something and write it, we call that nonfiction. Even though if somebody else sees the same thing, they're going to write a different version of that because we all see things, but we call that nonfiction, but the actual process of writing is all the same. And I think if you're a writer, like, you do it and you sort of always want to explore the different nooks and crannies of what that writing is and how, what's the best place to tell this story and how can I tell stories in new ways? Yeah, I agree. Plus you're sitting in front of a computer and it's just you and it's easy to get bored. (laughs) Exactly. So I hate to cut this short, but I do have to jump in a couple of minutes. That's okay. We're at the end. You made it to the end. So I appreciate you having you on the show. I love this. This is amazing. I want to start my morning every day this way. <laughs> First the shower. So we had, getting here took a while. My dog got injured. We had to reschedule. Then everybody had to. Like, then I had to shower. Yeah. The and then, yeah. It, How is your dog? He is good. He is fine. He's had three operations in the pandemic because uh, um, he's old and crazy. And today's my dog's birthday. Oh, what, how, what kind of dog? A Brittany. She's oh. 14. Mine's a Britney too. He's 10. What? Yes. Stop. Britneys are the best. They're the best. Britneys are the best. What is the likelihood of that? I uh, guess there is a likelihood of that. Yeah. But. You know, we're all writers. So I feel like we all sort of do the same kinds of things. What so, is your name? Uh, he came Max with two X's. Okay. I'm Looney. Looney. Uh, I feel like mine could have been a loony too. Like I have this picture, like the first picture we got of him, his tongue is hanging out. He's like a baby. And we have I, that too. The yeah. tongue seems she's running around in the yard with her yes. tongue, like flapping yes. in the wind. You see that and you're just like, well, I told my, my then wife, I saw the picture and I'm like, well, that's the one we have to adopt. Like he looks mm. insane, right? Like, and it's been 10 years of absolute happiness and bliss. And you know, like they get Aww. rambunctious. And so as he's getting older, he just, you know, he's gotten a little hurt because he doesn't realize that he can't go a thousand miles an hour anymore. Right, right. Yeah, but he doesn't know how to not go a thousand miles right, an hour. Right, right. Yeah. I feel his pain. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, ending with Britney's is always my favorite thing to do. Uh, and I'm looking forward to picking up this book. I have it on order and I'm going to read it. And congratulations on the option. I hope that goes well. I hope we all get to see that on TV. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it, Brad. You have a great day. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Emily Liebert. Her book, Perfectly Famous, is out right now. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you heard, the best thing you can do for the podcast is go leave a written review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, any of those places, and tell your friends about it. While you're doing that on the internet messing around, you should buy Emily's book. 
should make sure you get subscribed to the podcast. And most importantly, in this crazy time, and I look forward to the day that I don't have to say this because of a pandemic and everything around us, is that you take care of yourselves emotionally. You take care of your friends. Make sure you check in with people. I love books. I think books have the power to change our world, change our minds, introduce us to new things. But we can only do that if we are emotionally healthy with each other. So, week one is over at the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We will be back again on Monday. We look forward to seeing you. And until then, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.